Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So uh, the E. coli story is, uh, is really one that has caught the attention of everybody in this country, and particularly parents now, because we have the 342 kids in Alberta as of yesterday who tested positive for, uh, for E. coli. 13 remain hospitalized from what we understand. And it's a very serious issue. But what is E. coli? Which E. coli bacteria attacks the body? And uh, we, we all have E. coli in our systems, and most of it isn't of any concern. However, the E. coli, which infected over 300 kids at Calgary Daycares, uh, that one's known as, as I understand, as sugar toxin-producing E. coli. And it can be deadly as well. Let's talk to somebody who knows a great deal about this, and he's always very good to us with his time. Dr. Joseph Blondo, clinical microbiologist, head of clinical microbiology at Saskatoon's Royal University and Hospital and at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Blondo, thank you very much for coming on the program. I always like to ask doctors this question. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, thank you, and thanks for asking me to come back on. Yeah, it's good to have you with us. Because I don't think anybody asked, ever asks doctors, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Okay, good. What is the function of E. coli bacteria in our bodies? Well, E. coli is a normal organism found in the intestines of not only humans, but a number of different animals. Um, it's one of the coliform bacteria, of which there are many different um, um, genus uh, within sort of a large group of organisms um, that comprise this gram-negative family. And um, under normal circumstances, the bacteria that inhabit our gastrointestinal tract, for all intents and purposes, serve to protect us from other types of organisms that may cause disease. But in some patients, uh, E. coli in particular can, in fact, uh, cause disease. So a typical example would be a female patient with a urinary tract infection. The number one cause of uh, urinary tract infections in females is E. coli. And depending on which studies you read, they account for anywhere from 60 to 80% of all community-acquired urinary tract infections and up to about 50% of hospital-acquired urinary tract infections. As well, the E. coli that inhabits our body uh, may also move into our bloodstream on occasion uh, and cause bacteremia or sepsis. Uh, but, but under normal circumstances, most of us are healthy and live quite fine with these organisms in our intestine. Dr. Blondo, what are the conditions which need to exist to turn E. coli dangerous? Well, I mean, in, in regards to what's happening, unfortunately, in Alberta, uh, this is a particular strain of uh, E. coli that you alluded to, shigatoxin-producing strain. And this is an organism that has picked up the genetic material that allows it to produce this toxin. And this toxin is released from the bacteria as the bacteria multiplies and divides. And uh, a part of the pathogenesis of causing disease is related to the presence of this toxin, which can disseminate throughout the body. 
Um, is there a way to preclude this? Or I mean, we're, now they're looking at the potential because one kitchen serviced all of these daycares. Where does yeah. food handling and food safety come into play as far as E. coli, the dangerous version of E. coli is concerned? Well, I think we first of all, we have to acknowledge that uh, we're fortunate in this country that we have good food security and we have, um, you know, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency and we have other uh, entities which actually try and guarantee that the food that we come into contact with is safe. But uh, you are correct. Uh, under uh, circumstances where, you know, contaminated food or, or liquid products, water, um, unpasteurized milk, for example, uh, if they happen to make their way into the system, uh, then either uh, consuming this contaminated food, and, and certainly that occurs if you're eating um, undercooked uh, products like, say, ground beef that's undercooked, um, can facilitate the spread of this particular organism. And so you can imagine a scenario if you had a food handler, and if, if that turns out to be the source of, of, of how this spread uh, within the Alberta outbreak, um, one could imagine, say, a, a food handler perhaps had uh, symptoms of diarrhea, perhaps are not very good at washing their hands or hand washing is not part of their normal routine, uh, those hands uh, become contaminated during this process of trying to clean themselves after they've had a diarrheal episode, um, then that organism can be spread from the hands onto food and food products or onto surfaces that come in contact with food. And uh, once the food becomes contaminated, uh, if it's not uh, thoroughly cooked, uh, then there's a potential for transmission. So if uh, if this situation, and we pray that it doesn't, but if this situation were to happen in Saskatchewan and you were called in to, uh, to uh, address it, what would you do? Well, I, I think the first thing is, is we need to prove that, in fact, this is the organism that's uh, causing this problem. And that's relatively straightforward in a modern and well-equipped laboratory these days. It's a fairly easy organism to isolate and identify with the technologies that we have. Um, and then, you know, you start to uh, work backwards to try and figure out um, um, where the potential contamination may have come. So, um, you know, there have been uh, outbreaks of, of food poisoning in the past uh, that have been linked to either a certain event and sometimes to a certain food. And, um, and so you can work backwards to actually try and, and figure this out. And then as part of working backwards, you try and uh, determine uh, whether or not uh, it was an individual or a food source or a combination of an individual and a food source that may have been responsible for um, uh, this organism now being, uh, you know, uh, transmitted to other individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you have to move fairly quickly on this uh, because, you know, sometimes things get thrown away. And if, if you think it was a food-related uh, event, uh, if that food is not available in order to test, uh, then the opportunity may be lost to prove uh, where it actually came from. Uh, but So the lab needs to quickly identify these reports in the public health, and then public health needs to start the process of working backwards very quickly. Okay. Actually, one of the questions I had for you was, are there early indicators, and do they give sufficient time to respond? Well, you know, if a, if a patient showed up uh, to the hospital and they had the symptoms, so let's just say they had severe abdominal cramps, and uh, if they had blood in their stool um, as a result of diarrhea, perhaps if they were vomiting, they may or may not have a fever, uh, then, you know, a specimen is taken and sent to the laboratory. And with today's technology, we could actually, if we had a specimen this morning, uh, we could have an answer by this afternoon as to whether or not this is likely to be a, a shigatoxin-producing E. coli. 
um, that would be enough for us to then to alert public health um, as we go through our confirmation process. Um, so in, 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 you know, 10, 20 years ago, when the technology that we have today didn't exist, it could have taken days in order to determine uh, whether or not you had one of these organisms. But with today's technology, we can actually do it fairly quickly. Okay. What, uh, do you have concerns, particular concerns? I don't want to scare anybody, but do you have any particular concerns about the kids who are still in the hospital? Oh, I, you know, I mean, uh, these kids uh, that are in the hospital, if they have this uh, unfortunate condition called hemoglobinemic syndrome, um, you know, some of those children are on dialysis. Now, with appropriate therapy, um, the chances of a, of a recovery is very good. Um, but is it possible that some of these children could go on and continue to clinically deteriorate? Uh, yes, that is a recognized phenomenon with this uh, particular uh, disease. So I think we always need to be concerned whenever we see this type of illness uh, as associated with an outbreak that's leading to hospitalization in some of these patients on dialysis. It's very scary. Very frightening. Yeah, it is scary. Absolutely. So we've talked about E. coli, which is the big story out of Alberta. There's everybody in this country paying very close attention. But let's talk about uh, COVID and let's talk about the flu and shots and masks because it's all in the news and everybody has, seems to have strong opinions. Go on social media and it doesn't take you very long to find folks who have very, 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 very strong opinions on all three. Dr. Blondo, first of all, let's start with the, uh, with the annual flu. Do we know what the strain is at this point? What does the flu shot actually do for us, and who should be taking it? So uh, the influenza vaccine is, is a seasonal vaccine that actually has a number of different uh, um, strains of influenza covered. Usually it's a couple of type A's and a, and a type B. And what that does is, uh, so, so for, for all the listeners, uh, there are sentinel programs set up around the world. Uh, to monitor the emergence of new influenza strains. That information is, is taken by the drug manufacturing companies that, that produce uh, uh, vaccines, and they uh, take that information uh, as part of their design and construction of, of the new vaccine that will come out for, for this year. And so when you get uh, immunized with the influenza vaccine, it's uh, to pr provide you with protected antibody against the strains of influenza, or at least the antigens from the strains of influenza that have been put into that particular vaccine. And most years, uh, it's usually a, a good match. Uh, there's the odd time when, when perhaps the match is not perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, before the COVID pandemic, uh, we always used to talk about influenza every season because influenza is a killer as well. And, and once again, it, it tends to, you know, uh, have uh, some of its more severe consequences, you know, and the very young and the very old and people with underlying medical conditions. But it is a virus that actually can cause death in people of any age and, and, and really of any health status. Uh, so in my opinion, it's, it's never a virus that we should just ignore. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think most of us have just generally assumed, well, the flu, the flu comes every year and you, you deal with it and you get better. But you're right. I mean, there are hundreds of people who die. Obviously, you're right. You're the microbiologist. But the, hundreds of people die every year in this country from the flu. I would say thousands. Thousands, not okay. Hundreds. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's um, much higher. We, we get good statistics out of the United States. Um, um, and um, Canada is about a tenth of what the data is from the United States. So... You know, in a, in a particularly bad flu season, we may see two to three thousand deaths, and the United States may see twenty to thirty or higher, a thousand. Mm. Um, so once again, you know, it, it's a virus which um, vaccination can prevent uh, you from getting a more severe form of disease. 
And for that reason, it makes vaccine a reasonable uh, decision. So, as I mentioned, if you go on social media, you'll very quickly find people reacting negatively to the idea of any more COVID boosters and reacting negatively to the idea of wearing masks. You see the, oh, I won't do it. Hell no, not me. I'm not getting involved again. That's it. I'm done. Would you please, Dr. Blondo, speak to the people who feel that way about the COVID vaccine and the booster shots and about about wearing a mask? What do you say to the people who are telling me and telling, would tell you as well, not me. I'm not doing it again. I don't need it. It doesn't work. Well, they do tell me. Um, I do get emails. I, I get messages left uh, at my voicemail at the hospital. And um, there's a wide range of opinions. Um, everybody has COVID fatigue. Uh, th- that's an absolute given. Um, I don't think any anybody, including myself, want to go back to the types of restrictions that we had in the past, uh, particularly we're in the height of the pandemic. But, but the reality is, is the virus is still out there. And we have a well-proven intervention in terms of vaccination, plus a couple of antiviral drugs, uh, that we can use to reduce the likelihood that we would uh, be the victim of a severe infection. And, you know, those infections are still still occurring. Uh, We still see patients that are being hospitalized um, uh, with COVID. I mean, if you care to go to the Government of Canada website and look at the statistics that are posted every week uh, from the Government of Canada, you can look at how many uh, how many uh, positive um, um, people in Canada were diagnosed in the past week or two, and it's not a couple; it's thousands, sometimes tens of thousands. And um, and we do know that we don't like masks, but we also know after two years of experience with them that they work. And you know, if you have a vulnerable uh, member of your family. Uh, where you yourself may not be concerned about you yourself because, I, you know, I don't care. You know, it's possible that, that you could be the vector that could bring COVID home to a vulnerable individual, and that vulnerable individual could end up with a severe infection requiring hospitalization and, heaven forbid, uh, go on to die from this uh, disease. There are still lots of people in this country who are not vaccinated. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people who did not follow up with booster shots when they were made available. So that brings us to the current vaccine. So some of the terminology, Roy, is changing. Um, booster shots may not be the preferred terminology anymore because booster implies that you're being uh, immunized against something that you previously had immunization for. And in fact, this vaccine is a new vaccine in terms of specifically targeting the Omicron variants and subvariants. And as such, it's slightly different from the previous uh, or the original uh, COVID vaccines, first the monovalent and then the bivalent. And, and so it seems to suggest that we might be moving to this as more of a seasonal thing like influenza in, in terms of getting a, maybe a seasonal uh, uh, immunization or maybe uh, twice a year. I don't know the answer to that question at this point in time. Um, but... As the number of cases continues to climb, and they are doing so uh, in the United States, where the data has been quite convincing, and I believe they're actually starting to climb here as well, um, everybody has to make a decision what's right for them and their families. And as much as we hate masks, they are a proven technology to reduce the likelihood that you become infected or infect somebody else. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. 
And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.